Revelation 21, 22 to 27. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Well, good morning and welcome to the weekly gathering of Christ Community Chapel. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad you're here with us this weekend, whether you're here in the West service or over in our East service or watching online. Thanks for being with us. Hey, before I continue our sermon series, looking at the last two chapters of the book of Revelation, uh, I want to just acknowledge that this is a big week for the life of the church and and for my family's life as well. As you know, the church is voting on uh, my position changing. It feels awkward to be up here and not talk about it. Uh, so I just wanna say what an honor and privilege it is to serve here. That as my wife and I have reflected this week on all that the Lord has done to bring us to this point, we're just incredibly grateful and so happy to be here and hope uh, for many, many years of serving alongside you for the glory of Jesus. So just thank you. Uh, even for what this week represents. Really appreciate that. Uh, hey, if you have a Bible, would you take it out and open it to the book of Revelation chapter 21. We're going to continue our sermon series looking at our eternal hope, looking at what the Bible teaches us about heaven, about the new heavens and the new earth, and asking what are the implications for the idea of heaven on life today? How do we live with eternal hope? Hey, if you don't have a Bible, don't know how to navigate your way around the Bible, first let me say, I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, my guess is if you don't come from any kind of religious background, it was a big step for you to come this weekend, and I'm so glad that you have. Uh, we make Bibles available to you. They're in the pew in front of you here in the West service or in the back of the room over in East. I actually preach from one of those Bibles so that I can help you out with the page number. Although I will say today's reading is followed by a blank page. So if you get to the end, you are in the right spot. Today's reading is on page 978. It's the end of the book. I would recommend starting from the back and just turning left a couple pages until uh, you get there. Uh, but hey, I want you to know something. If you are a guest at, and, and all this is new to you, there's a danger for you, a temptation for you to think as though you are the awkward person in a family gathering. And I want you to know you're a part of why we are here. That this is not a room in which you are a spectator. You are a participant in what we're doing this weekend. You have been on our minds and on our hearts as we prepare. I'm so glad that you're here. You're invited to everything that we do as a church, and we use the Bible quite a bit. If you don't know your way around the Bible, let me let you in on something. In the very beginning of pretty much every Bible, at least that I've ever come across, is a table of contents. So if you show up at an event, a Bible study, a class, a weekend service, and we reference a book of the Bible, and you have no idea how to get there and you want to get there, all you have to do is use that table of contents. There are also a number of great apps you can get on your smart device uh, that make it even easier. So thanks for being here, and uh, feel free to use that table of contents in all the things that we do. 
We're going to continue our sermon series. We're going to do that by looking at the last few verses of Revelation chapter 21. And I'm, I'm feeling it a little bit this week, so I'm going to use four points. And you could tell on me, but Pastor Joe's in Togo. So no Wi-Fi. You won't get it. So um, you can snitch next week, okay? So four points, and they go like this. I want to talk about the glory of God, the glory of life, the glory of grace, and the glory formed life. Okay, the glory of God, the glory of life, the glory of grace, and the glory formed life. All right, let me start with the first point, the glory of God. What's interesting is that in all this writing about what heaven is gonna be like, about when heaven and earth join to become one, the new heavens and the new earth, in all this writing, the writer now takes a turn and he starts by telling us what is not going to be in heaven. That's just interesting to me. Not just what is there, but what's not going to be there. It's just a weird way of framing it. At least at first I thought it was. And then I thought sometimes things are better because something isn't there. Like I'll give you an example. Uh, my birthday is coming up and in my family when it's your birthday, uh, you get to pick whatever you wanna eat for dinner. I'm very excited about that. Haven't decided yet. My wife, Amy, is a great cook. She makes a lot of things that I like. I'm keeping my options open. But the other day she said to me, what do you want for your birthday? And I said, well, I can tell you one thing I don't want. There will be no vegetables at my birthday. Okay? The glory of my birthday meal will be found in the absence of vegetables. Okay? She says I have to have vegetables, but it's my birthday, not hers. And I'll be very popular with my children. So the, so the glory of something is sometimes enhanced by something. I'll give you another example. A couple weeks ago, Amy and I went for a quick trip out west, and we flew into Las Vegas and stayed uh, at a hotel in, in Las Vegas. Now, the highlight of the trip was, it was going to the Grand Canyon. But what was interesting to me is we had been in Las Vegas for a day or two before we went to the Grand Canyon. And I don't know if you've been to, to Vegas, but it is a full frontal assault on your senses. Like, they never let up. There's always music, always lights, always smoke, always. They don't want you to sleep because if you sleep, they can't make money off of you. Okay, so they are just coming at you all the time. And, and when you get immersed in it enough, you don't even notice. I mean, after a while, it's just, you just get used to it. Until a Friday morning very early when we went to the Grand Canyon. And I'm standing in the Grand Canyon and I'm realizing part of what makes it so magical, if you've come from Las Vegas, is the absence of everything Vegas. I'm standing in the Grand Canyon, and of course it's beautiful, but there's no noise. There are no lights. There's no smoke. There's no, nothing trying to grab my attention. I'm just resting. I'm thinking part of the glory of this place is what is not here. Well, that's what the writer is telling us about heaven. In fact, he tells us there are three things that you will not find in the new heavens and new earth. Three things that are not there. And actually, the glory of God is displayed in their absence. Here's the first thing. In the new heavens and new earth, there will be no temple. There will be no temple. Now, that's Interesting because this guy is writing to a first century Jewish audience and the, for them the epicenter of the city would have been the temple. 
The temple would have been what you went to the city to see. There are some people that would save money their entire lives to make a pilgrimage to the temple just to catch a look at it. Like a couple weeks ago when I took my son, my six-year-old son, to the Browns preseason game and we kind of round the corner where you can see the stadium and he goes, wow. And I said, hang in there, buddy. It'll break your heart a lot more than it makes you feel good. That's how it would have been for a first century Jewish person. They would have seen the temple and said, wow, because the temple for them was the physical representation of the presence of God. It was a reminder that you were among the people of God. You were in the city of God. The temple was where the presence of God was. In fact, the temple was so sacred and so important that only certain people could go in certain rooms certain times of the year. The temple was the reminder that God was with you, but also that God was distant. Now I say this because what the writer is telling us is that there is no temple. God himself is the temple because in the new heavens and new earth, there is nothing between you and God. God is imminently accessible, imminently present, not in the form of a building that has secret rooms only certain people can go in, but he is on display. He is there in his glory. He is accessible to everyone all the time. And the reason why this is so important is because so many of us grew up in traditions where we were taught not only was God distant, but there was a special class of person who worked for God and who was in between us and God. If you really wanted your prayers to be heard, you had to go to him and you would talk to him and then he would talk to God. That's what the temple represents. And even among evangelicalism, I know that some of you think this way because we'll be in conversation and there's almost this idea, 15 years of professional ministry, and people have this idea that if I say something to God, it carries more weight than if they say it. That I have some kind of special knowledge or special access because after all, I'm a pastor and you're a regular person. But the writer tells us there's no temple. There are no priests. There's nothing between you and God. He is accessible all the time. The second thing that's missing is the sun and the moon. Now I have to admit, I was a little bummed out this week when I was studying this because I thought, I like the sun. I like the moon. I mean, a sunset and a sunrise are beautiful. Uh, walking outside in a, a moonlit night is, is staggering. Well, a lot of writers think this is metaphorical, that what's happening here is the writer is saying that the sun and the moon are fundamentally arguments for God's existence. They're evidence of design. I mean, you, you know this. If the sun was a little closer, a little further away, we, we couldn't live on the, the planet. That these things are indications that our universe is not random. It's not accidental. It's fine-tuned. And then what the writer is doing here is saying that we don't need the sun or the moon. You don't need arguments for God's existence because there he is. He doesn't need to be represented by sun or moon, by creation, because there he is. But even if you take this literally and you think, oh man, I'll miss the sun, I'll, I'll, I'll miss the moon. Here's what the writer is saying, that the glory of God is so incredible that when you behold it, you won't miss a sunrise. You won't miss a sunset. You wouldn't trade it for a moonlit night. Now, I like all those things. My guess is you do too. So imagine what the glory of God 
must be like. So you have a God who's accessible, who's wonderful, who's beautiful, who's mesmerizing, who's right there for you all the time. And then the third thing the writer says is missing are shut doors. You see, he says the gates will never be closed. Now, there are two reasons you would close a gate in ancient times in the city. The first is for safety, right? You, you'd want to be able to sleep at night. And you wouldn't want wild animals or, or barbarians or whoever coming through. So you would, you would close the city gates and you would say, we're safe. So the, the first reference here is that this city is safe. There's no evil in the world anymore. So you don't have to close the gates. But the other idea here is that there will never be a time where you want to go see God where you're denied access. He'll never rest. He'll never need personal space. He'll never need a break from you. You'll never show up and find visiting hours are over. The gates, they'll be open all the time. Now think about what the writer is saying, because in this life, we often feel distant from God. We often wonder what he's, at, what he's doing. Is he listening? Is he paying attention? And the writer says, in the new heavens and new earth, we will see God all the time, anytime we want, right there, not for special people, privileged people, religious people, professional people, but all of us all the time. His beauty will be so incredible, we won't miss anything that we don't have anymore, and the gates will never be closed. The glory of God made manifest in what's not there not just what is. But the second thing I want you to see is that the glory of life is there. The glory of life is there. It's interesting that the writer uses the metaphor of light, that God will be our light, because light serves two purposes, if you think about it. The first is that it helps us navigate. If you're in a room and the lights are off, you're, you're far more likely to run into something in your way. So you turn the light on so that you can see your way around. That's one purpose. But another purpose is that light actually helps us see the beauty of everything else. There's an old expression that says, in the dark, all cats are gray, right? It's this idea that when the lights are off, you, you can't see the beauty of anything else. But when you turn the light on, all of a sudden, the colors and beauty of everything that was there is made evident. What a great picture of what's being described here. Look at what the writer says. Not just God in the, in the city, but look who else is there. We could pick it up in verse 24. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations." You see, the Bible tells us in the very beginning when God made Adam and Eve our first parents and he rested them in the Garden of Eden that he had a mission for them and that their mission was to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth with other people who would be worshipers and creators. You see, God says, subdue the earth, have dominion over it, shape it. The Bible envisions a beginning in the garden that leads to progress. That leads to technology. God wants them to make and create and shape. And what's really cool about it is in the very beginning, he tells them to shape, make, create, build, and he's there with them. So the implication would be if you run into a problem or a question you can't answer, you can ask God. That's even better than asking Alexa. Right? You could say, so it'd be like me in high school geometry saying, God, number 15 is a real doozy. Help a brother out. 
By the way, my teacher makes me show my work, so don't just give me an answer. You know, you got to give me... Imagine what human progress would have looked like if we had unlimited access to God. Imagine how far along we'd be. Imagine the scientific discoveries. Imagine the art we would create, the songs we would sing, the films we would make. That was the world the Bible pictures, and that's the world we get in heaven. You see, when it says the kings of the nations are coming in and they're bringing with it the glory and honor of their nations, he's referencing incredible things. In fact, let me show you four things. Number one, he's representing culture. The kings are bringing with them the glory and honor of their particular nations, which means if you're coming from Colombia, you're bringing coffee because they have great coffee there. And if you're coming, and I like coffee, and if you're coming from Northern California, you're bringing wine. And some of you, I can't tell you whether I like that. They're coming from Nebraska bringing steak. They're coming from all over the world because, and again, they're not making things in heaven because they have to feed their family. They're making things in the new heavens and new earth simply for the joy of making them. They're making coffee because coffee is their passion. And they can't wait to bring some of that coffee to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, you're going to love this. Meanwhile, we are all enjoying the diversity of culture. That's the second thing, by the way. In heaven, there will be diversity because it looks one way to do life in Colombia and another way to do life in Russia. The kings of the earth are coming in from their cold weather and warm weather. And by the way, a shame on you if you choose cold weather in heaven. It's enough already. All right? Enjoy yourself. Live a little. But they're coming from all over the world, bringing their culture and their diversity. And, and I'll show you two other things. There's industry and economy. They're bringing things they've made. They're bringing things they're excited about. They're bringing things they want to share. You see, if you grew up in church, if you were like me, you worried perhaps that maybe heaven was one big church service in the sky. And look, I work here. I don't want to spend eternity here. Okay, but that's not at all what's being pictured. What's being pictured is that the new heavens, new earth, because God is God, we are free to be who we were meant to be. And we are fundamentally creators and shapers and makers, artists, engineers, scientists. We're discovering and shaping and creating. And we can't wait to come back to the city of God and show him what we've done. And to share with each other what we've done. The biblical picture of heaven is, yes, a place where God is king and God is accessible. But it is also a place where you are free to be who God made you to be. Not to shape and create because you have to. Not to work a job you hate because you have to pay the bills. But to work with passion and excitement and energy. Knowing God provides for you what you are doing is discovering. What an incredible, incredible picture that is to come. The biblical version of heaven is all the meaning and purpose that you've been longing for for eternity. So we have the glory of God imminently accessible, a life of meaning and purpose and discovery and excitement and diversity and culture and sharing forever. But that begs the next question. Let me talk about the glory of grace which is to say the more I studied heaven this week, the more I began to wonder if I really belong there. In fact, I think this is the true test that you're actually understanding the biblical idea of heaven. 
is that the more you begin to understand it, the more beautiful it becomes, the more exciting it becomes, the more you begin to wonder what would happen if I was there. Because I have to be honest with you, I don't have a single relationship my entire life in which I have not broken it a little bit. There's never been a place I've worked or a place I've lived where I have not brought a little bit of trouble with me. I mean, you, maybe not, I hope not mostly trouble, but that's like saying, that's like getting on an airplane and saying to everyone, hey everyone, I'm just a little sick. I mean, a little sick is all it takes. A little contamination is all it takes. So in this beautiful picture of the glory of God being accessible and this beautiful picture of culture and diversity and economy and industry and sharing, what happens when I bring my selfishness? What happens when I bring my lack of patience, my self-indulgence, even just a little bit? I'll contaminate it. I'll ruin it. Little by little, bit by bit. In fact, I really think this is the true test that you're paying attention to what the Bible has to say about heaven. The more beautiful it gets, the more out of place you would feel being there, the more concerned you are that you would ruin it. I think the writer knows that. That's why he says this in verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. It can't, right? It can't. Because if it does, that'll ruin it. Just a little bit will spread. It'll, it, it will just not be heaven. Really good is not heaven, right? And in case you wonder, like I did this week, well, how do I know if I'm unclean? He, he fleshes it out a little bit more and, and he says, anyone who does what is detestable or false, those are pretty big umbrella terms. I would have preferred something here like murderers. Right? Because then I would have gone, Phew. but he says nothing unclean. I said, well, how do I know if I'm unclean? Anything that anyone has ever detested or anything that has ever been false. Well, I've told a lie and I have to tell you, a few people in my life have told me I'm detestable. Which means if there's a heaven like what's being described, I can't go. It wouldn't be heaven if I was there. But the writer knows we're going to feel that way. And so he does this beautiful thing. In every room he tells us about in heaven, he makes sure that we know there's this one person there. Look at what he says. I'll show you. Look at verse 22. It says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. Verse 23 and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So that lamb, who is the lamb? Well, that is, if, if you've been reading Revelation, if you've been coming to church for any length of time, if you haven't, spoiler alert, that lamb is a reference to Jesus Christ. You see, in the Old Testament, what God did is he gave Israel a sacrificial system. He, he let them know, I am holy and you are not. Another way of saying that is, I belong in heaven and you do not. So here's what we're going to do. Every so often, you're going to take an animal, in this case, a lamb, 
And that animal is going to metaphorically represent your sin. It is going to be as though all of your unrighteousness, all of your uncleanliness, all of your detestable and falsehood, all of that is going to be put on the lamb. And then you're going to kill the lamb and that's going to represent my judgment on your sin. So that once the lamb is gone, you have no more sin and I have no more judgment and we can be together. Now that was metaphorical. It didn't accomplish anything. It was a lamb. It was metaphorical, but it was getting us ready for for the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because you see, Jesus came to earth and lived a heavenly life on earth. Everything you love about heaven was true of Jesus. He, he, he was kind, he was gentle, he was firm, he was just, he was loving, he was patient, he was selfless. He was a heavenly man in an earthly world and yet his life ended at the cross. Because Jesus had come not to be a moral example. He had come to be a lamb. He had come so that God could put all the sins of the church, all of my falsehood, all of my being detestable, all of my uncleanliness, all of my earthliness onto Jesus, that Jesus would willingly bear that and come up under the judgment of God and die for it. So that three days later when Jesus rose from the dead, he would say, there's no more sin and there's no more judgment. Now you and I, Zach, can be one. You see, to be a Christian is to say, my only hope of heaven is that the one who built it has made me worthy of it. This is why the old hymn will say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked, come to you for dress. Helpless, come to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. As wonderful as heaven is, we could stop every one of those kings of the nations coming into the city, every one of them from Colombia to Russia to wherever else, and we could say, how did you get here? And the answer from every one of them would unequivocally be, Jesus lived in my place, he died in my place, he rose from the dead, and he made me holy. The Bible tells us that those who gain entrance into heaven are written in the Lamb's book, and your name gets there not by your moral perfection or your religious duty or even being here this morning. Your name gets there by simply grabbing hold of Jesus in faith and confessing that your only hope of heaven is that he has made you worthy of being there. So when we feel as though heaven is beautiful but unattainable, the writer says, ah, it would be, it would be, except for the lamb is there. It's as though we're in line waiting for judgment. We're in line waiting to see if we can gain entrance into heaven. But Jesus is in line next to us. And he's whispering to us, don't worry, don't worry. It's my party. That's my city. It's my book. And I put your name in there myself. But that leads me to my fourth point, which is to say that if you're here and you're a Christian, all of this is meant to inform your life now. 
It's wonderful to read what the Bible says about our future. It's, it's wonderful to begin to hope and, and long and dream of what God has waiting for us. But the reason we're being told this is because it has, it has implications for the way in which we live now. That's why the, the, the application of this sermon series is a news fast and social media fast, which begins today. We're challenging you to take one week and disconnect from the tyranny of the urgent of this world and live in the future, not the present. To live in the future, not the present, because right now we are so driven by anxiety and fear and division. And there's a whole industry out there designed to inflame that because they profit from it. And I have to tell you, there is nothing on the news this week, nothing on social media this week that's going to change your destiny. I don't care if your news feed is full of information about Joe Biden's son or about Donald Trump's indictments. Neither of those things will change your destiny. We are meant to be people whose present is formed by our future. We are meant to be people who don't rise and fall with the economy or who's in office or anything else because our future is certain. I'll give you an example, a metaphor of this, if you will. A couple months ago, my family spent time in Florida over the course of the summer. Uh, my four-year-old daughter, Ella, was born in, in Florida. Uh, she's very proud of that. She likes to talk about it. She calls herself a Florida girl. Okay. He's very proud of that. And uh, she was very excited about going to Florida, her homeland, if you will. <laughs> so three or four months before the trip, she began packing her backpack for Florida. Okay. And she would take a toy that she really loved. I mean, a toy that she would play with all the time. And she would put it in her backpack and she would say, that's for Florida. And she wouldn't get it out until we went to Florida. And I was, a couple of times I'd say to her, Ella, what are you doing? We're, we're going to Florida, sure, but, but, but it's a long ways away. And she, she would say, Daddy, uh, that's my Florida bag. Those are my Florida things. We're going to Florida. I'm a Florida girl. I'm, I'm telling you, when we went to Florida, that bag was 75 pounds. Now, this is an interesting metaphor because I can't think of a place less like heaven than Florida in the summer. Okay, very hot. But there's something in that that Ella had stumbled into, which is she was content to put some things away knowing she would get them back out. Friends, the secret to generosity is to know that whatever you deny yourself now, heaven has waiting for you. The secret to selflessness is that the opportunities you say no to now are waiting for you. The secret, the secret to so many things is remembering that there is a wonderful, beautiful, glorious future for you in which God himself will be accessible. In which you can spend your life making, shaping, creating, discovering. In which your future is certain because you didn't earn it so you can't lose it. That's meant to shape who we are now. But if we're shaped by the news, if we're shaped by social media, if we're shaped by industries designed to keep us afraid and divided, we will miss what God wants to do now. 
This is not poetry. This is a snapshot of your future. Let us live accordingly. Let me pray for us. Father God, if the Bible teaches us anything, it's that you are trustworthy. I mean, how many times have you proven that you'll do exactly what you say, that you'll keep all your promises? And so if you told us there was a heaven and then you didn't tell us anything about it, you'd be worthy of our trust. And yet in your infinite kindness to us, you give us just a, a peek into the future that is waiting. God, we confess we are a people formed by the present. We're afraid, we're anxious, we're angry, we're divided. Oh, Holy Spirit, I pray for an incredible week where we realize how enslaved we are to all the wrong voices. I pray for a Grand Canyon moment in the middle of a Las Vegas world where the only voice we would hear would be yours. And that you would form us into a future-minded but presently good people for your glory, for the good of Northeast Ohio, and to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.